It was a blistering hot day in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Hottest day of 2006, I call it, in June. A crowd of people had gathered outside the front door of an old four-room schoolhouse. The air was thick with humidity and anticipation. A stretch limousine pulled up, and eight individuals got out. They were in their 70s and 80s, but they were wearing bright blue graduation gowns. This was their school. Their community had built it for them back in the early 1930s, before they were allowed to attend the local schools where white kids went. It was called the Myrtle Beach Colored School. And on this day, the students were back to collect the diplomas they'd earned decades earlier. And there was not a dry eye in that crowd. It was absolutely beautiful. At that moment, we forgot that it felt like 200 degrees. You know, it was absolutely beautiful. I'm Sarah Wyman, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, the story of a community that came together in the 1930s to build this schoolhouse, and then came together again in the early 2000s to build it a second time, to preserve its legacy. The historic Myrtle Beach Colored School Museum and Education Center. After this. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. My name is Mary Cookie Canty Goins, and the name Cookie was given to me by my great-grandfather, my mama's granddaddy. I am a daughter of, of Myrtle Beach. Cookie Goings has lived in Myrtle Beach for her entire life, and her family has been here even longer, even before the city was called Myrtle Beach. My great-grandparents were one of the first five African-American families to, to come to Myrtle Beach. Cookie's mom, Mary Canty, was born in 1933. Mary's mother and a couple of her aunts moved north when she was pretty young for work. So Mary and the other kids stayed in Myrtle Beach. They stayed with their grandparents. And 
my mom was very close to Papa, and everybody called him Papa. Papa always told her that if she learned to read, she could go anywhere in the world. In 1930, in South Carolina, almost one-third of Black kids aged 10 and older were illiterate. Of white kids in the same age group, only 5% could not read or write. The authorities in charge of the public school system could legally spend their money wherever they thought was in the state's, quote, best interest. And more often than not, they decided that meant spending their money on white schools. That's why, until the 1930s, there was no public school for Black kids near Myrtle Beach. So they went to church instead. You know, all of our lives, we we heard about the years that they spent being educated in the churches. Because, well, the Sunday school teachers were also the school teachers. But the community decided they weren't going to wait around for a public school system that didn't care about them. In 1932, a year before Cookie's mom was born, the community built its own schoolhouse in Myrtle Beach. And for a long time, there was a question about who paid for the school. A lot of people thought the money had been donated by a guy named Julius Rosenwald. Julius Rosenwald was the CEO of Sears and Roebuck. He believed that all children should be educated, including African-American children. And so he donated monies throughout the country for these schools to be built for African-American children. Between 1912 and 1932, more than 5,300 Rosenwald schools were built across the South. But the Myrtle Beach School was not a Rosenwald. Because in order for schools to receive that distinction, Funding from Mr. Rosenwald had to be used to build the school. Well, the Myrtle Beach one, the community, the families, they pulled all their resources together. And the model is Rosenwald, but it was their money and their time and their skills, which gives a greater sense of pride, blood, sweat, and tears his parents and grandparents sacrificing for their children. That was incredible for 1930s. Years later, the former students sat down to be interviewed and to share memories. We had to do without a lot of things that we needed. For instance, we didn't really have a gym. We didn't have uh, any of the other extras like art. One of the Former students shares a story of how they would go every day across the street. I don't think y'all remember Mr. Arcee Bland, but they lived right across the street there. There was a house right across the street. And we'd go over there and take all the stuff to make soup in a big pot. And then we'd bring it back over here and serve it to the kids, the other kids. They are telling you what it was like to walk to school and, and be cold and no bus and no transportation, to play basketball outside because there was no gym but to express the importance of education and their appreciation for what they had. Even though it may not have been much compared to others, they appreciated so much that which they had. The Myrtle Beach Colored School was not a public school. It was not state-funded. 
many of the teachers were still the same ones who ran the Sunday school. The student's first principal was a local reverend. And their curriculum or whatever wasn't sanctioned or a state approved because they weren't supposed to be educated. In 1953, Carver Training School opened in Myrtle Beach. It was a new and better school for Black students. So that's where they went instead. The colored school was used as warehouse storage for a while, but before long, it closed for good. Just one year after the new school opened, in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. But still, it would take 10 years before schools in Myrtle Beach would actually be integrated. In 1964, Cookie's older sister was one of the first four Black students to integrate Myrtle Beach Middle School. And in 1968, Cookie was one of six Black kids to integrate the local elementary school. And while all of this was happening, the old school their mom had gone to just sat there. It sat in asbestos and just wear and tear and the elements or whatever over years. In the late 70s, a group of former students started trying to save the building and turn it into a museum. But they didn't have the money they needed. So the school sat there for 20 more years until 2001. The road it was sitting on was about to be widened and the school was going to be bulldozed. The former students created a committee They worked with the Myrtle Beach City Council and came up with $10,000. But it wasn't enough. The abandoned school was in really bad shape. It was just unsuited, wasn't fit to be used. And so, you know, when they realized that their building um, wasn't safe, um, wasn't able to be saved, then they really started aggressively to secure the means to have a replica of the school. They organized themselves and, and, and created a cookbook, $10, and it's still in um, circulation. I mean, we have them over at the museum for, for sale. But they also rallied a group of local organizations and private donors to help. They raised money, but also donated a lot of labor and materials. And then the community came together for a second time to build this historic school. All right, so welcome to the historic Myrtle Beach Color School Museum and Education Center, where we call it the hidden gem, not just within the city, but within the state of South Carolina and America. So come on, follow me. Today, a replica of the school is home to a museum. For years, the former students gave tours of the museum themselves. But now most of them have passed away. So the next generation has taken over. But this is one of the um, one of the front doors. This is one of the doors. Cookie spent 30 years as an educator for the local school district before becoming the director of neighborhood services for the city of Myrtle Beach. She and her department are the guardians of the museum, entrusted with the former students' stories. This is the edge of their chalkboard, their original chalkboard that we have framed and we're waiting um, to have it mounted. And there's one other artifact that's been preserved. It was especially important to Cookie's mom. The name, the color school, there were people like really, really upset. And there was meeting after meeting after meeting 
about the name. And I might be offensive. That might be my mother said it may be but in order to retain and maintain our history that was the name of the school the Myrtle Beach Color School and we wanted to forever be in the forefront so that history will never repeat itself they wanted their history to always be a part of this city, of this community, of the neighborhood. And so when I think of that, the video of them speaking, she says, there's a saying going around now that everybody's, you know, catching hold to about the village. It takes a village to raise a whole child. She said, but that's who we were. That's the way we came through. We are of the village. She worked tirelessly to get the museum. I mean, she and, and, and her team of former students, her classmates and schoolmates and the committee members, I mean, for 20 years, I understand, for 20 years, they worked for that hottest day of 2006, I call it, in June. They worked for that day to happen and to, to, to leave a legacy. So this section of the, of the museum when you enter is dedicated to um, former students. This is them on their the ribbon cutting day. They never got to um, graduate and they never had caps and gowns. So they were told just to arrive at City Hall. They didn't know about the caps and gowns. That was the first surprise. And then they go out to get into the various cars to drive over. Mm-mm. It was a stretch limousine. It drove them around just a little bit and parked alongside the museum. And they got out. And there was not a dry eye in that crowd. It was absolutely beautiful. At that moment, we forgot that it felt like 200 degrees. You know, it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it really, it really was a wonder of beauty to behold that day. It's not about the building. It's about those who inhabited the building and those prior to who built the building and those who taught in the buildings and the churches. So because of them, we are and are becoming. The former students of the Myrtle Beach Colored School and founders of the museum are Mary Canty, Patricia Burgess, Evelyn Britton, Frank Burgess, Beverly Clark, Flory Catino, Geraldine Davis, Nina Eady, Marie Feaster, Cecil Graham, W. Wayne Gray, Carrie Johnson, Jack Monroe, and Gail Olive. If you'd like to learn more about the museum or plan a visit, there's a link to the Atlas entry in our show notes.
thank you to Cookie Canty Goings, April Johnson, Frida Funny, and Tia Alford at the city of Myrtle Beach. Thank you also to Professor Vanessa Siddle-Walker at Emory University, whose research helped inform this episode. The archival audio you heard came from the historic Myrtle Beach Colored School Museum and Education Center. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes Chris Naka, Doug Baldinger, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, John Delore, Peter Clowney, Dylan Thuris. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall. This episode was sound designed by Chris Naka and mixed by Luce Fleming. I'm Sarah Wyman. Thanks so much for listening. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure they are always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.